If you change the life of a child, of one student, the economists of education will tell you both the private rates of return and the social rates of return on that investment are the highest in South Africa compared to even Brazil. In other words, there's a huge payoff to the individual and to the family just by having one student able to get a, a post-school qualification. So yeah, this is why I enjoy what I do, changing lives instantly. Hello, and as always, a very warm welcome to The Change Exchange. You're listening to the final episode in our series called Change in One Generation, where we hear the stories of South Africans who are taking leading roles in our country while their parents never had the opportunity to fulfill their potential. They are first-generationers, the first in their families to enter tertiary education. It's a hard and often lonely journey which demands enormous resilience and openness to change. My colleague in the studio, Frank Magwegwe, teaches financial wellness at Gibbs in Johannesburg, but change science is a major interest of his. Frank, you believe that we can all learn to handle change better if we understand the common factors in the way our studio guests have approached it in their lives, right? It's true, you always is, say yeah. it's not a black box. It's not at all. And in fact, there's a lovely formula that helps us to think through change, both as individuals and also as organizations. And it simply reminds us that there are three important factors that enable one to deal effectively with change. One is the idea of you need to be dissatisfied with the status quo. The second is you need a compelling vision of the future. The third is you need to be able to take some first steps. And so we combine those three elements, Ruda, into a formula that says change only takes place when the product of D and D times V times F is greater than R, and there we use R, to indicate to us the resistance or reluctance to change. And those elements really have come through almost all the stories that we have had on this podcast series. Yeah, the, the patterns are very clear. Yes. And as you say, we're not doing this just for fun, um, but people can learn from it and apply it in their own lives. Absolutely. And realize that if change is maybe a little bit hard for them at a point in time, they just need to go back and saying, okay, how do I score on dissatisfaction? How do I score on a compelling uh, vision of the future? Am I able to take baby steps or first steps? And then that would indicate where to start if change is somewhat difficult at a point in time. And we're going to hear another wonderful story for this episode. Our guest for this final episode has made that journey himself. Absolutely. And he spends a lot of his enormous energy <laughs> to help others do it, both individuals and institutions. Professor Jonathan Janssen, Cape Flats boy who got a doctorate from Stanford in the U.S., spent a number of tumultuous years as rector of the University of the Free State and is now a distinguished professor of education at Stellenbosch University, which is going through its own tumult at the moment. And then, of course, those are only the highlights. 
Prof Janssen, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Cape Flats boy, retreat. And you said you were only really interested in soccer, to, uh, always in the middle or the, or the lower part of the class. Yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, uh, fairly mediocre at, at school, partly because I was obsessed with, you know, uh, sports and in particular playing soccer. Something happened which changed that. Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, when you're a, a child and certainly a boy running around at the Cape Flats, the last thing you think about is academics. Because nobody else is thinking about it. You know, uh, your horizons are pretty much set by what you see around you and but by what your parents achieve. Neither of my parents finished finished high school, even though they were uh, uh, fairly well educated, you know, in, in the broader sense of the term. So, um, But so uh, your, uh, your was, vision of yourself, your picture of a future person was uh, if soccer couldn't get you out you would stay there and live a similar life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no soccer. I, I sort of knew I wasn't going to be a great soccer <laughs> But, but uh, yeah, what did people there do? They, uh, you know, uh, you could sell fish with Uncle Jarpy on the retreat road, or you could work in one of the factories, which at that time had sprung up around the railway stations, or you could, if you're really smart, you could get a clerical job at Plessy in Plumstead or something like that. I was happy, but I had no ambition at that point, you know, until one day I was running around uh, again in a soccer match during one of the breaks and my Latin teacher, uh, Paul Galantzi, calls me aside and he says to me, you know, I figured you out, you pretend you know nothing, but actually you have great potential. And I can't tell you, Ruda, what an impact that had on me. I, of course, I went on playing soccer, but when I got home, I, was, I said to my mother, you know, this is before Google. I said to my mother, what does the word potential mean? My Latin teacher said potential, and she said it means you don't have to play soccer for the rest of your life. So, you know, <laughs> and from that moment onwards, when I went to class, now conscious that my teacher thinks I'm something, I can do something, you know. I don't think I came second in class ever again, you know. Uh, and 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 that is also, in retrospect, I think why I became a teacher, because I thought if one adult can look at 33 kids in a classroom and have such an impact on me, just imagine if I could do the same for others. And I, I think, again, in retrospect, that that's probably why my first uh, job was a high school teacher. Mm. Frank, that's a pattern you see time and time again, that one person. Absolutely. And not only the one person, so two things came up for me. And I know, you know, Prof would be very familiar in his work with this concept. So, Prof, the first thing I want to say is, for me, what came up with the Latin teacher and then the discussion that you, you had with your mom, and she simplified potential to simply, you don't have to play soccer for the rest of your life. I, I, the thing, the way that came to mind when you say that was for me self-efficacy. And of course, you know, you know, that belief that through my actions, I can achieve things. So uh, uh, would you see it as that, that the discussion with the mess teacher and your mom had such an impact on your self-efficacy, hence... I never came number two again. Would you frame it like that? Because for us, when we talk about change on this podcast, we often say to our listeners, Prof, that one of the things we can do to deal with change well is to do activities that build our self-efficacy. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Um, the, the, 
you know, uh, in, in my simple world, it means having significant adults in your life at some point. Because a lot of there's a lot of adults in your life, in your church, in your sport club, in your, you know, uh, your school and so on. But most of them sort of just go by and then somebody stops you uh, in your tracks and says to you something that you've never thought of before. And so it does unlock self-belief, you know, because, again, when if you remember that uh, then and now on the Cape Flats is a fairly miserable existence. You know, you, you see gangs more than you see God, you know, in, in, in people's lives. You see hopelessness more than you see hope. But somebody tells you it doesn't have to be that way. And those significant. So I do believe every child, every human being walks around with a profound sense, with a profound, you know, uh, capacity to be able to realize, uh, 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 you know, these great things. But it, it, it won't come to you in a dream. It would come to you when somebody in your sphere, in your presence, says to me, my goodness me, look at you. So I spend, even today, a lot of time in schools, uh, you know, simply telling both teachers and, and, and students, you have no idea how smart you are. And Ruta, what's so interesting, just build on that, is the idea for me that this, this, this help that we get, uh, this uh, unlocking of our potential, as we've seen with all our guests, it's a person in their life and they just say something to them. It's not necessarily giving them money, you know, giving them a bursary. Here's a scholarship. It hasn't really been that if you look at the stories that we have had. It's a conversation and I believe in you. Which, which then means you may or you can believe in yourself. Correct. People don't spend a lot of time thinking about financial services. They simply think about the money they need to do things and the things they need to do with money. That's why at Brightrock, we don't think of ourselves as a financial services provider. Rather, we're a money company. In fact, we're the needs-matched money company. Everything we do is about meeting people's changing needs. That's why we created the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And because we want to meet people's changing needs throughout their lives, we set out to learn everything and share everything there is to know about change. We call it Change Science and you can learn all about it at the Change Exchange, a free resource that's filled with tips, tools and inspiring stories to help you navigate change in your life. You can find more on changeexchange.co.za or on your preferred podcast platform. Just search for Change Exchange. Made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Um, Jonathan, if I can skip forward, a, a big change happened in your life when you, and I think you were married already, that your wife went with you to America? Yes. How did you experience that? That, comp I mean, that zooming out to a much wider world? From Cape Flats to the U.S. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, what is fascinating to me is um, uh, uh, even though I had 
as I said, my mother, this Latin teacher, and a few others, you, because of the way you were brought up, because of where you were brought up, you always had a bit of doubt, you know, in your mind. So I get to the U.S., knock on the door of this professor that I'm supposed to meet. I remember I'm a high school teacher from District 6 on the Cape Flats, right? <laughs> I don't have a strong sense of myself. I, I'm here in the presence of Joe Novak, who's at the time the world's leading authority on concept maps and science, educa- science cognitive learning in science. And I'm nervous. And I knock on his door, a small little office, and he says, ah, you must be the man from Africa. So I thought, okay, this is not a time to tell him that Africa is a continent. I'm just going to like, you know, just, 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 just go with the flow here. And then he did something, Rida, that was that, uh, and Frank, that, I mean, I wish I could explain to you how earth-shattering it was for me. He turns his back towards me, goes towards a shelf on his, uh, you know, uh, in his book's uh, case, and he comes back with a manuscript, you know, and he says, you know, uh, this manuscript should have been with Harvard University Press um, uh, 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 last week, but I kept it back because I wanted your feedback on the manuscript before My I goodness. sent it off. Sure. I almost wet. I almost <laughs> wet myself. You know. Oh my word! Yeah. What can I possibly say? Yes. You know, it took me. It took me a couple of years to realize that what he was really saying is, "I believe you have something to say." Man, that was earth shattering. Yeah, I can. I cannot I can even imagine. imagine. Yeah. No, no. You spent six years in the states in the end, but then you decided to come back, and at that time it must have been a question, at least in your mind, uh, to come back to South Africa or not. You could have made a life there. Oh no, the, there was no question whatsoever. Um, I, I did get one or two job offers as an assistant professor. So, I mean, it would have been wonderful, you know, being at one of these great uh, Ivy League universities and what have you. But for the fact that the way we grew up, the way you would, you know, my parents, my mother in particular, used an agricultural metaphor. You know, she would say, you've got to come and plow back. In other words, whatever education you got, it was not for yourself. So I had a very firm conviction about that. I never once even to this day, wavered around the idea of, you know, uh, living a comfortable life and and teaching very smart kids and, you know, all of that. I knew that I wanted to build uh, back into South African education. I knew I wanted to see thousands and thousands of children, young people uh, doing well at school. I knew sort of in an embryonic way that I wanted to lead in some way. So there was actually, to be honest with you, never any doubt that I wanted to make a difference here. In other words, whatever you got is an act of grace. It's not you. This was an investment in you. And and I have a responsibility to this day in my 18 hours a day. I work with that understanding that I have been privileged, I've been blessed in order to plough back. Remember that Sarah Kumalu said to us that her grandfather taught her that, what did she say? A life without service is a life wasted. Correct. Yes, yes, I remember. Yeah. And it's very similar. Very and similar. And you can see, because often with change, we talk of the social support, the community, strong parents, grandparents. So you can really see, if we think of the vision, 
even though you know prophecies in embryonic stage the vision of coming back and plowing back into the country very strong from an early age Jonathan, you came back and you taught in KwaZulu-Natal at Durban-Westville and then you went into the heart of Afrikanerdom at uh, Tux at University of Pretoria. Why? Here's the thing. <laughs> it's a very important question that you ask because it's so much part of who I am. I never wanted to come back to Cape Town and uh, and spend my time in the same community where I grew up. You know, I thrive on difference. So at the University of Durban Westville, which is a university uh, as you know, designed under apartheid for Indian South Africans, I wanted to be with people who were Hindu and Muslim and ate different foods. So so for me, being out of place is a very important part of how I choose a job. I, I want to be in places where I don't understand the language or the religion or the culture completely. And, and and be out of place. So a lot of my books are written precisely because I am fascinated, you know. And so it was a natural thing for me uh, 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 to go from the University of Devon Westville to, to Tuckies to the University of Pretoria. And, oh, my word, it was like going from, you know, <clears throat> uh, uh, it was a culture shock, a major culture shock. First of all, I, I, I couldn't speak. My own language was, was, was English and not Afrikaans, uh, even though my mothers grew up in Montague, they taught readers in English, like many Cape Flats families. So first of all, I had to learn to understand in a sophisticated way, not in a Cape way, Afri- real Afrikaans, you know. <laughs> so I subscribed to the built. Yeah. And, <laughs> and every Sunday I would listen to Air Is Here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I said to myself, I'm going to really try and improve. And it was a great privilege for me to learn to be reasonably fluent, you know, in Afrikaans. But the place was so conservative. The men, uh, uh, I've never seen so much patriarchy in my life. I mean, women professors, whether you were, whether you were white or not, you were nothing. And of course, the place was very conservative. And so the other thing that I discovered at Pretoria, which to some extent still affects me today at Stellenbosch, I understood that there was two kinds of Afrikaans. There was the Afrikaans, Rudo, when I ever I meet you and I speak Afrikaans to you, it's a friendship Afrikaans. We have become friends over the years. I enjoy speaking Afrikaans to you or my friend Herman Hilomi or, you know. When I speak, when I came there and I spoke Afrikaans to people who thought it was their language, that it was an ethnic possession, um, that the slaves had nothing to do with it, uh, or the Malay uh, you know, it's a different Afrikaans. It's the Soweto Afrikaans, you know. So I had to f- interpret how to engage those forces. The big breakthrough for me is, is like many black South Africans, you had issues, you know. And, and I came to the University of Pretoria and I was very conscious of my defensiveness. I was very, very defensive with respect to, because I was the only, you know, First black dean of education. There wasn't a lot of black students around. Not a lot of black academics, and this so was, on. This Until, was when middle mid nineties. This is no, this is two thousand. Oh. So it's already you know uh, uh, six years since democracy and all of that, and then something here's the major turnaround again. So I don't know. You know, every time there's a major event, and I started to get close to the white Afrikaans-speaking students because I had an open-door policy. 
over the course of time, I didn't see them as white students. I saw them as my students. I saw them as my children. And you can only say that, by the way, in the Afrikaans community. You, you say that at, at WITS or UCT, they'll chase you out of town, you know. Um, you know, and, and a parent would come to me at, at, at open day or orientation and say, Professor, ek bring for you my kind. I'm bringing you my child. I understood that at a very deep level, that I had a responsibility. I was simply in loco parentis. I'm the other parent. And so I learned to love these students. I learned to be less hard. My heart was softened. My very hard, defensive, suspicious heart was softened. And I thank God every day for the fact that I could deal with my own, uh, you know, my own hatreds, my own pain, my own sense of dispossession by learning to love my students, regardless of where they came from, what they looked like, how they prayed. And uh, that's what Pretoria did for me, an unbelievable experience. Frank, we've come across this. Yeah. So it's it's about pe putting people in boxes um, yes. uh, for whatever reason and whatever the boxes look like. Yeah. And this the box just melted away. Yes. And I think for me also, because obviously the arriving at Takis, it's a big moment of change but I don't know if you hear just how Prof told this story already we could hear an action plan I'm going to subscribe to the build I'm going to learn the language I'm finding my feet you know that baby steps to say this is what's happening here and of course what you have just said now you know the idea of uh, the connection with the student and that just not only helped him change uh, you know, from personally in terms of some of his own internal issues, but you could see it manifest in a stronger, you know, relationship with with with, with the kids. Yeah. <coughs> so there's a big elements of change just there, both personal and organizational. We created the Change Exchange because at Brightrock we love change. And we wanted to know and share everything there is to know about change and how it impacts our lives. We call it Change Science. Change Science shows that everyone can get better at navigating change and that in all moments of change, there's always opportunity. To learn more about Change Science, visit the Change Exchange, our free resource that's filled with tips, tools and inspiring stories to help you navigate change in your life. Just like the stories in this podcast, you can find many more on changeexchange.co.za or on your preferred podcast platform. Just search for Change Exchange. Made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Jonathan, then when you went to Free State, um, the racial tension was terrifying. Uh, how did oh, you it really was. approach yeah. that? Right. So the, the first thing that I uh, always say at workshops on reconciliation and transformation or what have you is you can't presume to change other people unless you have changed yourself. In other words, uh, when you walk onto a campus with 36,000 students, you better believe there are 36,000 eyes watching you every single day. You can preach 
transformation till you're blue in the face. But if they don't see that you care, that you love, that you embrace, um, that you stand up for people, regardless of all of these apartheid nicknames, regardless of national origins, regardless of, of faith. If the, so, so, so I always say to my senior team, we're not going to talk a lot here. What we're going to do is show. The second thing, I spent the first six months on the job listening. I had nothing to say. I went into every courses, every residence at the University of the Free State, uh, twice a year, by the way. I went to the churches of my students. I visited their families on their farms in the Eastern Free State, in the Southern Free State. In other words, I wanted to try and absorb, because right now I wasn't running a faculty. I was running a big university, right? So, so my responsibility is different now, okay? It's much bigger. You learn very quickly to budget in your emotions for the fact that you're not going to win over everybody. But here's the beauty of South Africa. The vast majority of our people, whether it's in the corporate world, whether it's in university life, whether it's in, you know, actually just want to be together. They just want to live together. They just want to learn together. They just want a decent education for their kids. They they want the same thing, you know. And once I figured that out, it was relatively easy. And of course, it wasn't me alone. This is the other thing about leadership. One must learn very quickly. You're only as good as your team. And so I, I, you know, people often carry me on a pedestal and I feel so awkward about it because I know if it wasn't for those 12, 13 members in my senior team that met every day at five o'clock, my brief to them was very simple. Tell me what I did wrong today as a leader. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I have to tell you, sometimes it hurt, you know. Yeah. But I don't think I'd be able to lead without people who are better than me. That's so profound. And again, Ruda, you see in our formula, D times V times F, I arrive and I am not talking. I am listening for six months, right? Those baby steps very clear in how Prof, you know, arrived and the, the strategy of how do I lead the organization. It's no longer just, you know, being head of a, of a department. So you can really see for both personal life and leading an organization, the, the, the elements of the formula work well. And the, the vision is, Absolutely. I want to understand first. Yes. And then maybe I can formulate, uh, formulate a different vision. And if you go to the D, not putting words in his mouth, he did say that he thrives under differences. He likes being out of place. What happens when you are thriving under and out of place? You're dissatisfied by the status quo. You want to learn how they pray. You want to learn what they eat. You want to learn their language. So you take the trouble. You do Absolutely. the work. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm starting to believe this formula. <laughs> <laughs> It is a bit That's um, kind of you, Prof. <laughs> <laughs> it is seductive. I've also um, I've, I bore people with Ruda it. Ruda has become a good student of it, Prof. <laughs> a dis- disciple. A disciple. A disciple. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, you did a lot of work in schools in and around Bloemfontein. How does one go into an organisation like a school? It's almost like a huge organism. How do you, you can see, you can be dissatisfied with the way it works. You can have the vision of how it needs to be, but there's enormous resistance. So what are the steps you try and take to shift it? Yeah. You know, it's something very interesting. Uh, And just try and forget the 
the characters involved and their, their troubles at the moment. But I think I was at the Free State for about a month when I got a, a, a request from the Premier at the time to see me with his uh, MEC for education. So I was quite intrigued by what they wanted to see me about. And they came into my office, and I remember the Premier saying to me, Prof, we don't actually like you very much. <laughs> you're, always, you, you're, you, you, you're always very critical of the ANC and so on and so forth. I said, no, no, I'm critical of everyone, you know, but uh, in any event, welcome. Equal opportunity. He says, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, he said, we don't like you very much, but can you help us change our schools in the free state? And man, I can't tell you how happy I was when he said that, <clears throat> because he understood, as few politicians understand, that criticism and commitment is the same thing. It's precisely because I love my country, you know, that I talk about it. And so I said to him, sir, uh, I'm an education man, and this university, with its resources, will help you make this the best province in the country and will start with the metric results. I said, leave all the, the schools alone that are doing well. Bethlehem, Gray High School, Eunice, um, you know, vulnerable. just leave them alone. They will sort out themselves. We're going to take the 25% of the most disadvantaged schools from the Eastern Free State, put it at Chaba, all the way through to Coldsburg and so on. And, you know, I had a model, and I had a great team led by Dr. Piet Fenter, and we put together a model that said the only way you're going to change these results is by having teachers as mentors, experienced retiring teachers and principals as mentors for science, math, accounting, and English teachers. And for years in a row now, as you know, uh, uh, the Free State is the top province in the country in the metric results. That's simply because there was a partnership between the political people and its public resource. Remember, university in here is not a private thing. It's a public resource. And I had a great team, a really great team. And uh, if we had more time, I'll give you the formula in more detail. But it's, it's quite easy to change our schools. And, you know, what makes, me the, what makes me the happiest about this is that even in my work today with schools in uh, – the Western Cape and, and KZN, if you change the life of a child, of one student, the economists of education will tell you both the private rates of return and the social rates of return on that investment are the highest in South Africa compared to even Brazil. In other words, there's a huge payoff to the individual and to the family just by having one student able to get a, a post-school qualification. So, yeah, this is why I enjoy what I do, changing lives instantly. But I, want, I do want to go back to the schools and ask you to, uh, just one more question. How did you overcome the resistance of the, the teaching corps, um, the uh, people who've done this forever? You know, I've been here for 25 years. What are you, why are you what telling me you to do something? What do you know about schools in Free what State? What do you know? And, yeah. And, and, and yeah. 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 So here's something quite remarkable. Because we had the backing of the Premier, we could go into any school. So, again, remember, it's an ANC-dominated province. He would let the word out. The professor and his team is coming. So we had political cover. Otherwise, you're dead in the water. You're right. Uh, secondly, so we said to the principal— So the unions wouldn't resist you? No, not one, not once, not once. 
even when we ask for teachers or principals who were clearly messing up to be moved, not once. Secondly, we said to the school, we are not bringing in inspectors. We're bringing in a teacher to help, uh, and nobody will know about this. That teacher will work with you for the next 12 weeks in physical science. Nobody will know about it. And we trained those, those teacher mentors to be respectful. We taught them to say, teach, and then also observe teachings. So you are there as a helpmate to the teacher with 40 kids in a class. And so once that understanding was built that this was non-judgmental, that it was strictly developmental, the teachers bought into it. And then when they saw the results improve, they didn't want us to go away. So the next big change in yourself, the, the, a choice for change, was to move back into, uh, uh, to let go of the leadership role and go back into teaching. Am I right? Is that what you're doing at Stellenbosch mainly? Not, not, not so much teaching, uh, uh, particularly post-COVID. Um, my goal was always, at, at my heart, despite all the other things I had to do, I'm actually a professor. I, I was up at four o'clock this morning grappling with the intellectual problem for a new book. You have no idea how excited I get just by having the time to think and think through difficult issues. But I don't do that alone. I lead for, on behalf of uh, the Department of National Eye Education, uh, a, a program that I devised, by the way, at the Free State called the Future Professors Program. So when people say there are not enough women professors and there are not enough black professors, well, we're doing something about it. So I designed a program, and the Minister Pando then said to me, do it for the whole country. So we take the smartest senior lecturers in all 26 public universities, I have a team again, and we teach them how to become global respected professors in their fields, whether it's chemistry or uh, uh, sociology and so on. So I've got 90 of them at the moment from all the 26 universities. They're the smartest young people I've ever met. And so that's a big chunk of my time is how to prepare future professors. And then I take a lot of postdocs and I train them how to write their first books. Then I've got the uh, 20 schools that I'm working with in different provinces at the moment. Uh, and then I do motivational talks all over the country, other parts of the world. So, yeah, I, I, I'm I living my best life. <laughs> so, whilst you're saying that, Prof, what comes to mind for me, uh, firstly, you sound like you, you've got these various gigs if we use today's language. But I want to know, how does a person who has been at the highest level running a university, not a department, uh, you know, makes a decision to go and run this portfolio of things, given, for example, you know, in our country at the moment, some of the challenges we are facing in leadership of higher uh, institutions of education. I mean, it's, you have arrived, you're there, you're running the university, and you kind of give it away to run the portfolio of things you are doing. How did that change come about? Was it planned, as you're describing it, going back to my roots as being a professor? Yeah, you know, you know, Frank, thanks for that question because it allows me to address something that's very important to me. You know what for me is the highest honor? Running a university is, of course, an honor, but that's not for me the highest honor. The highest honor for me is to be in a classroom teaching high school children. You, you don't have to call me professor. Just call me teacher and you honor me. 
you honor me, you know. So my world is upside down. I mean, I, I enjoyed everything I did. But right now, being able to change on the ground, and I just wish I could have had the two of you yesterday in the school in, in Kailicha, where you have 35 kids learning a new method for reading, and they've become the best school, one of the best schools in the province for reading literacy scores. Man, you can't pay me for that. You can't pay me enough. Wow. And Ruda, do you hear all his change? He's a personal, personal vision associated with it. And it just came so strongly. So it's easier to navigate change when that v- compelling vision is present. Of course. Okay, so the two of you in yeah. three minutes, <laughs> how do we, how can the tertiary institutions of this country help us to build towards a united vision? Mm. Frank, you want to start? <laughs> yes, let me start, Prof. I'll be very brief. So what I've been thinking about and trying to do in class, I teach at, at the Gordon Institute of Business uh, Science, the Business School of the University of Pretoria. And one of the things that I have been trying to put my efforts on since I started teaching there in 2021 was just the realization that our students who come and do particularly our MBA, one of our most popular courses, these are our future leaders. They are either middle level or already higher level and um, close to stepping into those, you know, chief executive, chief operating officer uh, roles. And so what I realized just in the way I teach and, and engage with them is the idea that I need to pay more attention, not so much to the technical stuff that I teach, like corporate finance, but to really interrogate them on what type of leaders do they want to be? What legacy you know, do they want to leave? How can they leave Gibbs with their MBA? But that's just a secondary thing. They found something about themselves in that two-year period there with us, and they can go and touch lives of employees in their companies to contribute to a better South Africa. So I've moved, uh, in my own view and practice as a, as a, as a teacher, the, the, the technical info is important, but I'm trying to touch them at a personal level so that they can make a bigger impact when they go back to corporate instead of just i want to be good at the technical skills and make lots of money and be a ceo so that's the little that i've been doing but of course you'd hear i started by saying i've only really been in full-time academia since 2021 so i'm still quite green (laughs) (laughs) well i'm hearing i'm hearing uh, jonathan's remark uh, just now that you can't change other people before you've changed yourself so you are influencing these middle-level leaders, future leaders, to change inside themselves so that they can go out and and make a bigger impact. Yes, instead of just profits, profits, they want to make a bigger impact on South Africa and their companies, of course. Jonathan? No, no, I I think we're on the same page. Look, um, uh, you know, I once um, uh, 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 had a very interesting lunch with the head of the JSE, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. I'll never never forget that discussion. Um, and I was telling him, uh, I was a man at the time, that you know we are doing a good job uh, at Free State at the time, training students. And you know, he, he rebuked me. He says, no, 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 I will train them, you educate them. <laughs> And I'll never forget that, which is very much what Frank has just said. We forget 
that the the, the technical. Of course, you must be a good engineer. You must be competent in civil engineering. Or but but are you also empathetic? Are you also somebody who can embrace people who are not like you? Are you also somebody who uh, understands at a very deep level that you in the values business, you're teaching people how to value life, how to value themselves. If you also understand that one of the key goals of a university in a country like this is to teach people the habits of democracy. If you understand that broader opfooding, that broader education, and it matches the training, oh my goodness, we'll change this country tomorrow morning. Ah, music to my ears. <laughs> Thank That's you so, so wonderful. much. I'm going to bring it to an end oh. right there, and uh, because it's so inspiring, so inspiring. Thank you for giving us your hour this afternoon, Prof. You really have inspired us, and I'm sure our listeners will take so many lessons from your story of change. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Ruda. Thank you to both of you. It's yeah. It's the end of our of our series and our working together and uh, thank you to the listeners for giving us your time i hope there will be another series absolutely I until think. then goodbye <laughs>